0: (laughs) Good evening, I'm uh, Michael Frain, this is Michael Blakemore. Um, Five years ago, Michael and I sat on this stage and talked about the first volume of his memoirs called Arguments with England. Arguments with England was about the early stages of Michael's career, his struggles as an actor when he first came to this country from Australia. Uh, And it ended with his first success as a director when he found and directed one of the great plays of the 20th century, Peter Nichols' A Day and the Death of Joe Egg. And when we talked about it on the stage, I commended uh, Michael's restraint in stopping at that point uh, because I said uh, early struggles are always interesting and biographies, autobiographies, memoirs always get very boring when it goes on to meetings with famous men. Well, I was going to say Michael uh, didn't take my notes. Always, always very difficult to persuade uh, Michael to take notes on my plays, for a start. Um, but I have to eat my notes, I have to eat my words, because he's gone on and written uh, Vol Two of his memoirs, Stage Blood. Um, and it's an absolutely wonderful book. I find it extremely unfair that Michael is not only one of the greatest directors in the world, but is a really terrific writer because uh, some of us can only do one job and wouldn't dare uh, attempt another one. Um, Stage Blood takes us, uh, covers the first seven years of your? Uh, well, probably five. For five years, from 1960? 1960... From, na- uh, n- well, re- 69, I suppose, through to 76. So, so from that's... when you uh, joined the National Theatre? Well, were I You did... first directed for the National Theatre. Yes, Theater? which yeah. was National Health. And then my, my two and a half years with Olivier, and my two and a half years with Peter Hall. One question I want to ask you about the uh, production of the National Health. You haven't mentioned in here an absolutely wonderful stage effect you had. And maybe it was just at the, at the press night. But when you you're set in a, a hospital, if you haven't seen the play, and when you came into the theater, there was that dreadful smell of ether in the air, which immediately establishes you're in a hospital. Do you do that every night, or was that just for the press? No, that was every night. <laughs> and it was very effective, because of course, uh, smell is one of the things that immediately connects us to memory and feeling. And we, we, uh, Harry, the, uh, the, uh, one of the guys who used to work in the theater, he used to collect it every night and go around spraying it at the back <laughs> yeah. of the theater. And people would come in and go, oh my god, almost (laughs) turn around and walk out. But it did immediately take you back. Of course, hospitals don't smell like that anymore. But in those days, they all smelt of ether. And when you went in, you you smelt dread. (laughs) (laughs) Was it, uh, and you had a big success with the National Health, was was that what led to your being invited to become an associate? I think it probably was, yes. Uh, I'd worked with Olivier as an actor. And I knew him very well. And uh, that was a huge success. And then I had a feeling he might ask me to join. And indeed, he did. And then uh, I've said meetings with famous men are always very boring. You couldn't have a much more famous man in the theater than Laurence Olivier. But you didn't just meet him. You did work with him. And in fact, you did uh, a production which everyone remembers from that time of uh, Long Day's Journey. With him. That's right, that's right. Was it daunting working with uh... Extremely daunting, yeah. because uh, uh, he was not only uh, the leading actor in the company, he was also my boss. And uh, I, 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 I was also enormously, uh, I revered him, certainly as a talent. We fought a little bit on managerial levels. I mean, we had different tastes in plays. He never very much liked the national health, but he put it on, which is to his credit. Uh, and uh, he wasn't intimidating, or I didn't feel intimidated, by him discussing the running of the theatre. But as a talent, as an acting talent, it did feel almost an impertinence attempting to direct him. So I began by not doing so. I directed everybody else. And uh, we, we, I bonded with the other three. And we'd started having fun, and uh, Larry used to go leave us when he wasn't required to rehearse he 'd go down the other end of Aquinas Street to his office where he was administering the theater, and then he'd come back again, and he'd see uh, Connie and Ronnie Pickup and Dennis Quilley and I apparently having a great time <laughs> and then he sort of insinuated himself into the process, and finally, I think we did become a true ensemble, and he was always extremely courteous and very easy to deal with, very respectful of the category you were in. If you were the director, he wouldn't dream of contradicting you publicly. He might have a few words to you privately if you said something he didn't like. But it was a very, a very happy but fraught experience, because the National was in a very bad state. Olivier had been very sick. This was his first major part. Uh, after having had thrombosis and cancer and God knows what. And the theatre depended on this show. We were losing money hand over fist. We were two theatres, the new in the West End and the old Vic. And both theatres were doing badly. And our hopes depended on this show. And his reputation as artistic director depended on the show because everybody thought he was past it. And he had this absolute triumph. And it was extraordinarily thrilling and uh, as i gather from the book uh, he rather forgot your contribution to this trial. no that's not no, that's not altogether the case no he was uh, he, he 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 was very much an actor and he he things was it, you, you were thinking of the time when he uh, gave me called me into his study and gave me a little bit of lecture about yes. but yes yes we, we he was very generous when it opened and, and he took me out to dinner once and said he thought i'd done a great job but something was niggling him. And about a year after we were in the run, he came back from the Variety Club of Great Britain's uh, annual lunch, and he got the award. And he'd had a, few, a, few, a couple of drinks. And we met in the corridor, and he looked at me, and he thought for a bit, and he swayed to him back and forth. And then he said, come with me. And we went down the corridor to Aquinas Street, his study. And he went in, and he closed the door. And then he got a bit of a bit of paper. And he drew, two, uh, he drew a circle, an oval circle. And I suddenly realized it must be the set seen in ground plan of Long Day's Journey that he was drawing. And then he drew, drew two seats where he and Ronnie Pickup sat. And Ronnie, he was slightly upstage of Ronnie Pickup, but he was at the far end of the oval table. And then, from, then he drew two circles representing the actors' heads. Then he did sort of two searchlights proceeding from the heads of the actors going out into the auditorium. And he showed me these. And uh, Ronnie Pickups, although he was downstage of Olivier's, his went straight out into the auditorium. Larry's, because he was acting down the table, went slightly into the wings. (laughs) And he handed me this bit of paper. And he said, see the problem? (laughs) (laughs) And I was actually very touched and very impressed because he hadn't said a word during rehearsals at any time. Uh, It had worried him, but he never said anything, Uh, out of respect, I think, not for me personally, but for my role as the director, and also for a fellow actor. He didn't want to appear to be impinging on a, a fellow actor's advantage. But it had niggled him, and after this lunch, And three or four or five glasses of wine, he felt he had to say, have his say. But you did get so cross with him at one point that you called him to his face a treacherous old bugger. Oh well, I'm afraid I did, but uh, (laughs) I'm afraid I did. But that was uh, not altogether his fault. It was, (laughs) and you know, in the theatre. Uh, theater rows backstage are always rather heightened and tend to get more passionate than, than they need be. And in this particular instance, uh, he uh, ha- I'd been asked if I could direct the television. And I was doing Macbeth, which was my first Shakespeare. And I couldn't do both at once. And I was asked whether I would like an apprentice director or I would like Peter Wood. And I said, well, Peter Wood, a very distinguished director, who's done a lot of television he just won a, an Emmy, I think, for a Hamlet in New York. And I thought, well, I'd better go for the more experienced director, because I don't know that I've got the time for it. But I said, he must understand that the limits of the brief, that he's going to do my production, not a new one of his own. And uh, I'd heard from some gossip. It may be untrue, but I'd heard it. it at Shepparton, where Peter Wood was directing another television, that he intended to do an entirely new production. So I thought, we must have it out. We must get together with the television people and find out what the lines of authority are. So I called this meeting. And Larry said, can I come along? I'd like to come along. And I said, of course. And then we went to the meeting, and he sided with Peter Wood. And I was appalled. I I was very quiet about it. Then the meeting ended, and we got into the lift. And as the lift doors closed, I absolutely exploded. And that is when I called him a treacherous old bugger, was it? Or was it? That's what it says in your book. (laughs) Right. I did. And he looked very shocked, as well he might. And uh, uh, he said, he looked very gray. And he said, don't you talk to me like that. And then I went ranting and raving until the lift got to the bottom. And then the doors opened, and we were silent, and we got into the cab. And then I discovered it wasn't actually his fault, because he was away making a film. And nobody had told him of the arrangement. Nobody had told him that, what the agreement was. And when we got back to the uh, Aquinas Street, he was shown the contracts. And he said, well, why didn't you tell me? And everybody said, well, you were out filming. And they, he should have been told. So he, he, he wasn't culpable. But uh, it was a a bad moment. One of the um, great virtues of the book is it's a wonderfully detailed account of what it's like to actually direct a play like that. A very detailed history of the way you put the production together. And then again, of another huge success you had, uh, of the front page. Um, Somewhere in the book you say that um, directing Tragedy is always more fun than directing comedy, but you make it sound as if you've had a pretty good time directing The, the Front Page. Well, The Front Page was, was great fun, and it was such an unexpected thing for the Nationals to be doing. And I loved the play, and I was brought up in Australia on the Hollywood movies of the 30s and the 40s, and uh, this sort of fell into our lap, and we had a very, very good resident company, and it was extremely bold for us to presume we could do this very idiomatic American play at the National Theatre. And the, the cast were loved it too, and they rallied round. We had a, I took them to the movies to, to see Scarface, I think, and uh, 42nd Street, which were movies contemporary with the writing of the play. And we had a voice coach, and we worked really hard to get it right. And Michael Annals did a brilliant design. He'd been over to Chicago, and he'd gone to the, the original press room where the play takes place, which the authors, Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, would be very amused to know had since become a VD clinic. <laughs> it, it was very much in line with our view of the world. Uh, and um, uh, the, the National, uh, the Old Vic at that time, the stage was much for, farther forward than it is now, and it was huge behind us. So it was more, it had the opportunities for something almost like a film set. And that's what we did, we constructed a great movie set and did this play, and uh, I I think, I hope, we pulled it off. It was a big surprise, nobody quite expected we could do it. The uh, the murderer in the play, who's about to be executed, who escapes and uh, gets into the press room, and I gather the original stage direction says he simply climbs through the window. But that's not what he did in your production. No, he didn't. And again, I can't take particular credit for this idea because it came to me through Richard Bullimore, who was the, in charge of building the set and so forth. And uh, I asked Richard, he read the play, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he said, it's amazing, but surely you've rewritten it. It's so up to date. Because it's a very brilliant, sour look at American life. And a lot of the things it dealt with, like racism and... The Red Menace and all that, red in those days as if they'd been written yesterday. And then I, he said he loved it. And I said, no, we hadn't written, rewritten a word. But he said, I love that moment when he comes crashing through the window. And he hadn't, in the stage direction, said he just comes through the open window. So I went away and I thought, well, what if he did come crashing through the window? So I went back to Richard. And he said, yes, that was possible. Uh, it'd have to be a balsa frame window. And we'd have to maybe go out to Pinewood to find out how they did such things. So we went out to Pinewood, and we learned from them all sorts of other things, like how to make bullets appear running along the the, the wall of the building during the jailbreak. And the, the thinking behind it was that this escaped criminal has been hiding somewhere up on the roof, clinging to a drain pipe, which then comes away from the wall And he swings in a great trajectory straight through the window and bursts into the room. And And no one who ever saw that production ever, ever (laughs) forgot that scene. No, it was very, 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 quite unexpected. And we had a very brave actor uh, playing the part. And he, he really went for it. And he swung through the window. Glass went everywhere. Wood went everywhere. And he was thrown into the middle of the stage. But there was one problem we discovered at the dress rehearsal that when all the other reporters came back, there was this glass all over the place. And it was sugar glass. And it left this terrible crunching sound. <laughs> and so we thought, we've got to have a line to cover it. What? So I, we, uh, I got the cast together. And we thought, well, how can we get it right? And James Hayes came up with an absolutely brilliant one. One of the reporters was a very effete character called Benzinger. And he was the one who had the roll top desk in which the criminal is hid at the end. And um, uh, James Hayes suggested that somebody say, somebody says, what's happened? What's all this glass? And and as James said, Benzinger broke his glasses. (laughs) And it was a great line. It got as good a laugh as any in the play. But the production almost didn't happen. The production almost didn't happen, because uh, the uh, rights of the play were divested between the, is that the word, divested? Um, Uh, No, uh, no, invested, invested Invested with the two authors, with the widows of the two authors, Charles MacArthur's widow, Helen Hayes, and Ben Hecht's widow, Rosa. Hmm. And Ben Hecht, if you remember, was a very brilliant scriptwriter and playwright, but who'd taken a very strong line about Israel when Israel was coming into existence. And he was quoted as saying, there's a song in my heart whenever a British soldier is killed. Well, this didn't make him very popular in this country. And his work was banned. His films and things were banned and not shown in this country. Uh, And when we did the play, we thought we had the rights. Had we done it in England, we would have simply had to get, no, had we done it in America, we'd have simply had to get the permission of one of the owners of the rights. And Helen Hayes, who was uh, MacArthur's widow, was very keen and was happy to do it. Uh, But if we did it in England, we had to get the permission of both widows. And about a week before we opened, we had this crazy letter from Ben Hecht's widow saying, under no circumstances would she allow the play to be produced in England. And it was a very weird letter with little bits of music and and quotes. And it was a little bit crazy, to be perfectly honest. And we didn't know what to do. And there was a special meeting of the board and uh, then Lord Goodman came to our rescue, the great sage of the British legal world. And he said, well, she hates Britain so much. To, in order to bring an action to prevent the play from being performed, she would have to come to England. And there's no way this woman will travel to England. And he said, I advise you to go ahead. So we went ahead and did the play. It was a great success, and once the royalties started arriving, I think she forgot all about her objections. <clears throat> Olivia wanted you to succeed him. Do you ever regret that it didn't happen? No, because I, I, I'm i not an administrator, and I have no great interest in it. And I, it was, was a job I never really wanted. And I think he kind of knew that, and that's possibly why he never brought the matter up to me personally. But when his... His autobiography was published some 10 years after he'd left the National, maybe longer. I was astonished to read that he nominated me to the board. Uh, but it was not a job I wanted. Uh, I, I like directing plays, and I don't think I'm very good at the other part of it. But you've also got a great fascination for the politics of running a theater or a big organization. First of all, um, you... Uh, describe the, polit- the backstage politics of the RSC in your novel, Next Season. And then in this book, there's a very uh, thrilling account of the politics of the National Theatre in its, in its early years. Um, so you've obviously got an instinct for that kind, of, that kind of political world. Well, I haven't an instinct for it, but if you run a theatre, or you help to run a theatre, uh, you have no choice. You are hurled into this political arena, and you have to somehow cope with it. And uh, there was as much politics, I suppose, in Larry's day as there was in Peter's. Uh, The consequences of the politics for me personally in Peter's time were were less comfortable. But uh, it's always political, because the theater is such a competitive business. There are only a certain number of good parts. Directors are always struggling to get possession of a good text. There's not enough goodies to go around. So the competition for attention, uh, to do the work that you want to do is, is very intense. Yeah. And so it's not, un- not, not unexpected that it's a very competitive world. Will you give a really thrilling account, a thrilling narrative of the developments that led up to the famous row between you and Peter Hall, which uh, eventually, after he'd become director, which, um, led to your leaving the theater. Um, in, in a word, what was, the, what was the essence of the quarrel between you and Peter? Well, it was he uh, asked me to join the National Theater as an associate. And I was very happy to do so, because at that time, he said, I want you to come in and have a special relationship with a company. And the company, Larry's company, which I'd helped to collect and and develop, uh, they were moving into the new national. So it was a chance for me to continue my work. Also, the uh, prospect of this building was very exciting, and I wanted to be part of that. Uh, So I said, yes. Uh, But uh, of course, being an associate director is nowhere near the pressure and the difficulties of being the artistic director, where you have to change your mind five times a day the, the climate, like the weather, is constantly altering. And I, I thought Peter was the right man for the job. And in, in some ways, I still think that. Uh, but I didn't agree with the way he was taking the theater. And I thought that it didn't accord with the brief he'd given me as to what my duties would be and what the theater was going to be like. So I had my obje- objections to this. But I thought that The National, which I believed in, I thought it was important. And I wanted to encourage it. Uh, I wanted to make a protest, but I wanted it to be an entirely private, in-house protest. So I did something which, on reflection, was almost impossible to pull off. But at least it would maintain the integrity of what I was trying to say. I wrote a paper, which I did entirely on my own. I never showed it to anybody, in which I outlined, with possibly excessive frankness, what I thought was the problems we were facing and the wrong turnings we were taking. I didn't show it to any of my fellow associates because that would be creating a conspiracy. And I didn't want to show it to anybody because I didn't want to get it to get beyond an associates' meeting. And then I asked Sue Higginson, who was the secretary who, can, who took the minutes of the meeting, if I could be given some time. And I went in, and I read this paper. I'd made a series of mistakes. I read it far too close to the opening of the National Theater. I hadn't realized until I started reading it aloud how very contentious it was. And I didn't realize either. I was the only member of the Associates who experienced the Olivier regime, and how it was run, and knew intimately how it was run, and how actors were paid, and so forth. And none of the other members of the uh, associates, Harold Pinter, John Berry, all those people, they had no experience of this. So they didn't have anything to judge the current regime on, which I did. And I suddenly realized, as I was reading the paper, that there was no way they could take sides with me, because I was really asking them to side with me against Peter. And uh, so it was an impossible thing to do. And uh, it ended with them handing back their copies of the paper to me and really rejecting what I had to say. Well, this was all right. I went to Peter. He asked to see me, and I went and I offered to resign. And that's what I intended to do if I wasn't being listened to. I intended I would resign and say no more about it. I said I was prepared to work for him freelance, and I would go. I wouldn't show the paper to anybody outside. Once I was away from the National, my responsibilities to it would be over. And I would keep my mouth shut. Uh, And I did leave. But then, and I'm not necessarily saying this was done deliberately. I have no way of knowing. But I I, I was told by a number of people that my uh, resignation was as a result of me leaking something to a journalist and that this whole reading of the paper had been part of a, of a scheme on my part to undermine Peter, possibly even to supplant him. And I was extremely angry, because I had taken enormous trouble to maintain the integrity of that paper, enormous struggle. I had not spoken to anybody about it. I hadn't spoken to my wife about it. I'd never shown the paper to anybody. I wasn't going to make trouble, and I left. And I found a great deal of trouble was being made for me because, in a sense, I was being presented in such a way that it totally discredited anything I might have said. Uh, So I was was very sour at that stage because I didn't quite understand what was going on. I was by myself. I'd resigned. And I was facing uh, an institution which had at its disposal a huge amount of influence in the world of newspapers and publicity. So when I left the National, I was going to write the book. And it would have been a very angry book, and probably not a very good one. And I was trying to conduct a professional career as a director, and that was taking all my time, and indeed making me my, my living. And the book was postponed and postponed and postponed. And it eventually came my first book the memoir, Arguments for the England. And then only in my, I suppose, 80th year did I suddenly see the time to conclude this book that I also wanted to write. And I wrote it, and I'm very glad that it took that time to write, because by that time I could remember how angry I'd been, but I was no longer angry. And the events surrounding my resignation were so vivid The occasion when I read the paper was so vivid, there was not a minute in that entire meeting that I did not remember with exact accuracy. Uh, And also, I realized that the book suddenly had something to say, quite apart from its theatrical politics. Because it was a time when England was changing. And it was a time when uh, Margaret Thatcher had come to power. Privatization was underway. All the utilities, like the electrical companies, were all being privatized. Uh, And the notion of public service, which had been in place since the end of the Second World War, up until that moment, was slowly being eroded. And something was happening, not necessarily exclusively in the national theater, by no means, but something was happening in society at large, which I didn't like, but at that time couldn't couldn't quite define. But it has now expressed itself uh, with triumph. And uh, I find, I I greatly regret it. I greatly regret what's happened to the BBC. And I uh, greatly regret what's happened to that whole notion of public service. Well, your (coughs) resignation for the National was a great misfortune for the theater. But it was my stroke of luck. Because if you hadn't resigned from the National Theater then, you probably wouldn't have been able to direct most of my plays, which you have done, uh, which has been my great fortune in life. Now, I think we ought to open up the debate to the audience. Can we have the lights up? Slowly, slowly dawn comes up. Um, I would be very grateful if anyone with a question would stand up and speak very loudly, because I'm as deaf as a poet, and we have no microphones. Brought together by your play Copenhagen. I had phone calls from Paris saying what is this play like? I said, very, very good, very complex, very entertaining. So my friend went into rehearsal, he phoned a week later, and said, This man cannot direct the play. You know Michael Baker. I said, I don't know him. He's a bloody good director. Should he come and do it? I said, if you can get him, get him. You went across to Paris. The play had been in rehearsal, it was cut a very brave thing to do. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, well, I, I rather enjoyed it. I thought I could make a fool of myself in Paris, and no one will know. <laughs> uh, and the, it had been given to a director who, it, it is a very, it's a play that you have to think a great deal about before you stage. Because uh, w- w- I, with, with my designer, Peter Davison, I worked and worked and worked over various sets. And we went through various permutations, how much set we needed, how much changes, how much this. And finally, we finished up with nothing, because that was clearly the way to do it. And this Parisian director had a set. He had a forest, and he had a sky, and he had sets, and he had this and that. And the actors got very, he got very discouraged. And the actors were quite an aggressive lot. And they began challenging him. And uh, one of them. Astrop? Uh, Astrop. Niels uh, Astrop. N- N- Niels Astrop. N- yeah. Astrop yeah. was a, a, a very tricky piece of work. And one day he said to this director, I could make this entrance coming in very slowly and thinking. Uh, let me show you. And he did that. And he said, what do you think? And the director said, hmm, that's rather good. Or, he said, Niels Astrop said, I could come in dancing <laughs> and smiling and do it that way. Let me show you. And he did that. And the director, who was getting very nervous, said, yes, that's rather good too. Or, said Niels Astrop, I could come in slightly drunk, swaying about from one side to another and just collapse on the floor. Let me show you. And uh, they did that. And the director said, well, that's also interesting. And, the, and Niels got up and said, get out. You're absolutely hopeless. You couldn't direct your, direct your way out of a paper bag. So then I was rung up, possibly with your intervention, by Miriam de Colombie, who ran ran the theatre, and uh, uh, she asked me if I'd come over. So I said, well, I'll come over and meet everybody. They all speak English because my French is practically non-existent. And I went over and met them. They all spoke very good English. And they read the play to me. And I knew the play sufficiently well that I could tell where they were in the French text, And it's very curious with language. I've done a number of plays in foreign languages. I did two plays in in Danish. And I can't speak Danish to save myself. But when you are acquainted with the play in English sufficiently well, you can almost give inflections in the foreign language. There's something wrong with the music of the line. And in in Danish, I I would say to the Danish actors, I don't know quite why, but I think you ought to be stressing the word (laughs) And they'd say, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and in the case of Copenhagen, I knew it very well. And I was able, I think, to sort of make a difference to them. But we got rid of the set completely. The, the, the producer, Miriam de Colombi, was the theater owner, was, uh, provided me pretty much with the set I had in London. I gave them much the same moves, altered them a little bit. We got it together in two weeks. And, uh, it, it, because it's a great play, it, it then proceeded to win a lot of awards. Michael and I went over and and uh, accepted a few. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. Well, you, you've just, you've just uh, 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 reminded the audience of my only bad notice, <laughs> but unfortunately, they're the ones that stick, but that was a really horrible notice, uh, which I, I, I put in a box, which I refused to open. Uh, but the other notices were much more understanding, and Simon Callow was terrific. But at the end of the book, uh, that's why I called it Stage Blood, because Stage Blood does wash off. And in our business, a a lot of very temperamental, gifted people get together and fight for space, fight for attention. And temperaments get exercised, and tempers are lost, and rows happen. And then the show is over, or the theater, the management changes, and it all seems really not so important after all. And uh, as I say in the book, uh, I I was very agitated by what happened to me, but nobody put me in prison. I wasn't accused of a crime I didn't commit. And the stage blood washes off. But the theater is interesting, not because crimes are committed or because there are villains or heroes or any of that, but because it it recreates the emotion of those sort of things without real human damage. I mean, it happens on stage. People die and are killed and shoot each other and hate each other and love each other. Uh, but there aren't consequences once the curtain falls. And indeed, the rows we have when we're trying to run a theater, they kind of they pass. And uh, I, I had a great row with Peter Hall, a long-lasting row. But we often used to meet, as I say in the book, these days at memorial services. Uh, And uh, we always are civil to each other and we chat and inevitably you see somebody and you see something Oh, I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten that. That's quite a nice quality he's got. Yeah. Uh, One of the Well, uh, uh, not really. But, but Shylock, of course, is a, a different part. It, it does lend itself, if you're so inclined, to an enormous nose and all sorts of other decorations. And Jonathan, uh, Jonathan said to Larry, you don't need that. You don't need that. Look at me. Look at me. You don't need that. <laughs> uh, and uh, 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 and uh, Larry was very good. He listened to Jonathan. He knew he was highly intelligent. And Jonathan was a little braver than I was, and, he, and a little bit more impulsive. And he did, um, he did say things to, very bluntly to Olivier, and he took them on. And, but he kept his teeth. And the teeth were an absolute wonderful touch. I don't know if you remember them. They were a wonderful touch. And it was a great performance, very sympathetic and felt wonderful. Is somebody out help. No, I absolutely don't think that. I absolutely don't think that. Uh, 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 you know, I was quite touched, actually, when he offered me a role as uh, as associate director. And also, I did think he, he's a man of, you know protein gifts. and it needed somebody. This building was extremely challenging, and it needed somebody who was a very great politician. Was uh, had the skin of a rhinoceros, who had all sorts of skills, and I, at the beginning, really thought that he was the right man, Uh, and I didn't uh, take any animus uh, at all. I didn't have any animus towards him at all. When I saw, shall we say, another side of him, when he it seemed to me was attacking me unscrupulously, then I suppose I did. Put two and two together and connect it with other bad times I'd had. But I certainly didn't write this book out of any uh, bitterness or sourness about my time at Stratford, when well, I was an actor, I was simply an actor. Yes. Well, I I hope that it would. And there were a number of people that Tristram Pohl of the BBC wanted to do a film of it. And other people have wanted to do a film of it. I didn't want to be involved. I I wouldn't have liked to have done the screenplay, but I would have loved it to become a movie. Uh, But it's never happened. But uh, if any of you see the possibilities of it. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Yes. Yes, and and the money burning a hole in your back pocket for financing it. Yes, yes. Any more questions? Can you say something about what it's like to work with a revered uh, author like Michael Frame when you and the author perhaps have ideas about how a play should be directed? Well... I've known Michael so, so long, he's no longer revered. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever was. <laughs> and uh, we're very candid with each other. We, we, uh, he's very good, because what he does, which most, most authors don't, and nor should they necessarily, but he comes to the reading, and then he leaves me alone to get on with it, which I like, not because I want him out of the way, because I know his rehearsal manners would be impeccable, but because if the the author stays, rehearsals, there's a political dimension to rehearsals. The minute you have any number of people in a room together, there's a political dimension. And if the author stays, he invariably becomes caught up in that. Who does he support? Does he support the director? Or does he support an actor who he suspects may have a better idea about the play than the director? I mean, it's very difficult. But if the author stays away, as Michael does, and then I ring him up and I say, we, we, I, we act once in pretty good shape, would you like to come along and tell us about it and tell, give me your notes? I know he comes along and he sees it absolutely fresh. And therefore, what he has to say is really worth listening to. It's worth listening to anyway. But it's got a clarity and a, uh, uh, an immediacy, which is very valuable to me. We've occasionally had disagreed, haven't we? Oh, we've had disagreements, yes, but never any very... Never major ones, ones. no, no. no. But I have to say that our collaboration begins long before you get into the rehearsal room. Oh, Um, yes. Michael's great skill, is I think it's the great test of a director, is doing a new play that hasn't been done before. If you do a standard classic, you know at any rate the play works, because otherwise you wouldn't be doing it again. But with a new play, no one knows if it's going to work or not. Um, And I've sometimes... uh, we always um, collaborate very closely on it. And, and you often make points, persuade me to make things clearer or, or cut things or whatever. And I sometimes wonder, when you've been doing uh, a classic by a, a dead author, if you've longed to do that same process with him and get Shakespeare <laughs> or Chekhov uh, uh, down to Biarritz with you <laughs> and persuaded him to do a bit of rewriting. Well, no, I, I haven't done that. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, it's very exciting doing new work, but new work is launched completely into the unknown. You have no idea. I mean, Noises Off, probably the most successful and popular comedy that's ever been, ever been done, ever been written. Uh, when we were doing it, Michael sent me the, the first draft, and it's a hell of a play to read, I can tell you. There are so many directions, and it's hard to read and very difficult to read. And I read it, and I thought, well, it, probably very good, but I want to lie, lie down. It's, it's too... <laughs> uh, And then I had discussions with Michael Codron, the producer, about it. And at one point, Michael said to me, Michael, do you, do you think this is going to work? Isn't it a bit too elaborate, isn't it? And I said, well, I think it's gonna work. Well, let's, let's proceed on the basis that it will. So we went into those rehearsals having no idea whether this play would work, because in the middle act, where all the mime, where there's the mime and then there's a play happening upstage, The mime was meticulously timed to the dialogue, which is proceeding to a fictional audience upstage. And if the audience were laughing too much, the actors wouldn't possibly be able to hear the dialogue upstage, in which case they would completely lose their way in this choreography dumb show that was happening downstage. So I didn't even know whether in practical terms it would work. Of course, it worked sublimely. And once it's working, it looks the most obvious thing in the world, as if it it was always going to be like that. But with new work, you never really know. And indeed, with with Copenhagen, we had no idea whether that would succeed. We thought we'd get a few science groupies in and (laughs) new school teachers and people, but we didn't think it was going to go to Broadway and do all the things it did, or indeed go to Paris. Listen, there we're going to have to leave it. I've got one last question for you. And that is, are you going to go on and write another volume and uh, write about our collaboration? And if so, will there be Ritz flying back and forth? <laughs> no, I think, I, think, uh, I think I've written my last word. What he, Michael is going to be writing this evening is his signature in uh, copies of the book, if you, if you want them, in the, uh, in the circle foyer. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.